Few issues remain as divisive to the broad Christian church as the issue of LGBTQIA inclusion in church and community. For those of us who have no close friends or family members who identify as part of that rainbow flag, it might seem cut and dry. But unless we wrestle with the word of God as if it were us or a treasured loved one, is to, perhaps unknowingly, sit in a place of heterosexual cisgender privilege that can deny the harm and hardship that befalls LGBTQIA people in the place that should be the safest on earth, church. In this week's episode, I interviewed Nathan Despot from The Brave Network. Nathan has been on the front line fighting for LGBTQIA people for a long time. He's been doing this through government advocacy, spelling out the harms, risks and danger zones in churches and sexual orientation change efforts and conversion therapies or ideologies. It's a minefield. For the historic conservative, it might seem as if this is an attack on the church, but this is far, far from the truth. Through the Brave Network, Nathan has helped forge a way forward for people who are loved by God but perhaps poorly understood. He has helped people understand how welcoming but not affirming is actually incredibly damaging to LGBTQIA people of faith. And most of all, he is helping people understand how, if we reject some of the beautiful souls that God has intentionally created, it is actually us that's missing out. I hope you'll listen with an open heart today as we talk about LGBTQA inclusion in faith and community and the damage that's caused when we do not affirm and support someone's deepest held identity. It's a message that some sections of progressive Christianity have embraced, but one that large portions of the church globally still finds difficult. Thus, it's one we need to keep talking about. I'm Kit Kennedy, and this is Unchurchable. Thank you for being on the podcast today, Nathan. How are you? No worries. Good, thanks. How's things from where you sit? Oh, yeah, you know, it's uh, it's great. It's great. As they say, trying to work out whether to celebrate Easter in my lounge room or my, my bedroom. Oh, um, yes, totally. Gosh. Big decisions. Yeah. <laughs> it's all a bit weird, you know, streaming church online and, um, you know, not seeing your friends. It's, that's not the usual Easter that I'm I'm accustomed to, so... Um, do you find yourself engaging in much kind of self-care or any any particular ways that you're coping with the uh, COVID-19 outbreak that are helpful or you're just kind of locking down? Well, I mean, look, it's a lot of therapy usually, even mm. without the COVID crisis. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, so that's just continued online. So that's great. Uh, and then, um, yeah, just making sure that I'm keeping in touch with friends and you know, playing games with friends online and having wine and cheese over Zoom, which is fascinating. Oh. Um, so, you know, that's been great. Yeah, yeah. I feel like Zoom's share price must have just skyrocketed over the last kind of, if it's, if it's publicly listed, because I feel like everyone's gone from the free Zoom membership to the group Zoom membership so that they can actually chat with a lot of people and consume alcohol seems to be the way it happens. <laughs> oh, that, that share price has been on my mind as well, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. So um, I wanted to chat to you today about um, a really important topic, um, and it is the, the role of LGBTQ Christians in the local church. And the question comes from a very personal place. It seems uh, like the people who are closest to me in my life right now are all LGBTQ. Um, well, not all of them, obviously. There's a lot of people in my circle, but um, the, those that are nearest and dearest to me this is a very personal issue for them and it hasn't always been easy. We've faced a lot of, um, you know, homophobia and especially internalised homophobia within the evangelical movement. Um, this is an important issue for you as well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I probably knew that I was gay from when I was about five years old, mm -hmm. or around that time, and um, that's something that I hear frequently. Yeah. Um, I think uh, that I was much more aware without words when I was yeah. about 10 years old and then probably was able to use the word gay internally when I was about 13 and then say mm. that loud when I was probably 17. Right. Um, and, yeah, I was raised Catholic and it was made very, very clear in my eastern suburban sort of half Irish Catholic, half Mediterranean Catholic local community. Um, or really, I should just call that Australian Catholic because that's pretty <laughs> much the character of most Australian Catholic churches. Um, you know, that, that homosexuality was, was evil and sinful. But the main thing that's interesting and I think is a theme that runs through so much of the um, 
the issue of conversion practices, which is now what I spend a lot of my time mm -hmm. advocating about or against, um, is yeah. this idea, yeah, this idea that, um, well, back then the words were that homosexuality is a choice. Uh, and yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. And that's interesting because I think, um, and I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but this idea of um, there are very few things that I knew to be true and real in the world when I was, you know, 15, 14, mm -hmm. what have you. Um, I didn't understand how the economy worked and I didn't understand some of the, you know, funny parental games that parents play when they try to get you to do what they want you to do. <laughs> I'm the sure mind games, they start early. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I probably, you know, didn't know who my friends were and I wasn't quite sure about what my body was doing and I wasn't quite sure about what I wanted to do when I grew up, but there was one thing I knew and that was that I was gay. Mm. And so um, I think this concept of gaslighting, which is a term that is around a lot, Oof, um, yep. These these days and dare I say in vogue, terrible mm -hmm. thing to say, but let's face it, it is a word yeah. we're hearing a lot more. Yeah. And and that core concept that it's about um, questioning someone's reality or, you know, in pop speak, making someone think they're crazy when mm. they question something you're doing to them. Yeah. Um and I think that is um that is sort of I think a, a nice little foundation for understanding a lot of the work that I do with LGBTIQA plus people yeah. um, who are yeah. Christian. Now, th this is, I, I want to um, highlight the work that you do on uh, advocating against conversion or um, sexual orientation change efforts. Um, that is, that's a really, that's a hot button issue for me because on my shelf in my lounge room, I have a handbook that um, that my guy got from going through gay conversion therapy, as it was then called, and and you use the term LGBTQIA conversion practices, don't you? Yes. Yep. Yeah. This is something that I've seen people try to deny exists or or deny ever happens, and yet, uh, like, I get really hot under the collar about it because um, people say, "Oh, that doesn't happen," or they say, "Oh, you know, we." we Churches don't say that homosexuality is an abomination or that churches don't say that. And yet I'm sitting there going, oh, you know, I've, I've listened to this for a long time. I've heard this a long time. And I, I came at it from a position of what I call straight privilege, where it could kind of be water off a duck's back. But, but now that um, my best friend or my two best friends are both, you know, LGBTQIA, <laughs> well, one of those letters, mm. it can't be all of them. That would be a lot, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> like it's something that I'm so passionate about. Um, mm. So, so how do you kind of get through that denial that these conversion practices exist? And what do you, as a person who is a Catholic and then later an evangelical, how do you deal with this theo theologically? Well, I think this is yeah again going back to this thing of playing with people's reality, mm. um, because uh, you do have a large number of people. Um, and we've seen so many people in the church in Australia and around the mm -hmm. world spend a huge amount of their life, years, sometimes decades, mm -hmm. um, believing things about themselves that are horrendous yeah. and taking on board ideas almost like a virus that's been, uh -huh. you know, that's taken hold inside of them and that can spread yeah. um, and has spread mm -hmm. um, ideas about why you are same-sex attracted or gender diverse what happened to you when you were younger that caused that to happen? Or maybe in some of the more kooky communities, you know, what did your parents or even your great-great-great-grandparents do to cause you to be this way? Um, although that's not so much an issue these days. Um, <laughs> no, but and, it was for a while, wasn't it? Literal family mapping of, of who you could kind of blame for the, this, this, you know, this problem coming upon you. Um, and I use that, it grates me to use the word problem coming out of my mouth because I'm so hardcore affirming in my theology. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah and I think, and I think those, you know, those kooky Pentecostal sort of, um, you know, casting out demons and breaking curses and stuff is a bit not so much what we see anymore or really at mm -hmm. all. Um, that was something from the past. And I think um, sometimes media, when they try to report on conversion practices, they sort of get caught up in these what I call fetishized understandings yeah. of the conversion movement. Um, mm -hmm. The issue with fetishizing these kinds of things is that um, they don't really uh, happen so much anymore. And so focusing any interventions on those things is probably not very helpful because you won't really 
intervene on much because it's not happening in that way anymore. But um, yeah. in terms of uh, these ideas that people have in their minds, like I was saying before, um, it, and as you were saying, it is very difficult to get religious leaders to admit the things that they are thinking and the things they have been doing. Mm -hmm. you, what we've had to do with our, in our work has been, like 50% of the work at least, has been simply defining what the ideology is behind the movement. And now that we've got a clearer sense of how to articulate that ideology, we have to make sure that we insert it into every advocacy document we produce, every yeah. submission to inquiries that we produce, every time we speak to, you know, Senate hearings or to, um, you know, public servants at the Department of Justice or Health and Human yeah. Services, we have to define the ideology. In fact, we now describe this issue as the LGBTQA conversion uh, practices and ideology, um, okay. and we ins insert the word ideology. And then we have to break down the core assertions behind the ideology into such clear language that no religious leader can wriggle out of them. Because if you even leave a tiny opening, mm -hmm. religious leaders will simply say, oh, well, we don't do that. We're exempt. You're not talking about us. And often uh, yeah. they are. Mm -hmm. So, so okay, this is really interesting to me um, because... It, we are dealing with deeply held beliefs in a lot of cases, in, well, in you know, the majority of cases, I'd say. Um, so mm. how do you go about actually confronting these? And I'd like to take the next however long it takes over the course of this conversation to unpack that a little bit um, and, and talk about it not just from the damage that it's actually doing to the LGBTQIA community, but also the, the way that it's just not right biblically was just not right in the sight of God so um, mm. I, I know that I'm taking I know that it might be offensive to some people to hear me say it just like that but I kind of also don't care a little bit because um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's time the church starts to think about its inclusion practices when when you follow Jesus he was the ultimate example of inclusion and that's my high horse but it's your soapbox today Nathan so back to you talk to me <laughs> about these key aspects of these this ideology and and the practices that might be subtle to people or unrecognizable to people now but I hope that we'll all start to notice going forward yeah yeah so absolutely well I mean at the core of it like I said before is this idea that people who are same-sex attracted or gender diverse have had something go wrong mm -hmm. in their development and it could be abuse neglect or anything radiate radiating out from those concepts mm -hmm. um, and then it's led to some kind of uh, you know, maladaptive behaviours and, um, and it, I guess there's this idea that, you know, choices have been made deep down in the childhood psyche that have led to these, um, this sort of development of a, of a, a gender or sexual yeah. identity sort of during puberty or mm -hmm. earlier um, that's not straight and not cisgender. Yeah. And I think that um, one of the things you find is that, for trans and gender diverse people, it happens a lot younger. Um, there's a very, very strong sense that um, uh, the, there is something really perverse that needs to be fixed very quickly when young people start identifying with a gender that is not the one they were assigned at birth. Mm -hmm. um, and then we hear that a lot. Right. So from, from a, uh, a Christian perspective, because you are a Christian, yes? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Still identifies like, identify as a Christian. Absolutely. You, <laughs> yes. Um, what do you say to this um, this idea that it's something wrong or something's gone wrong? I mean, um, secular research, or just I should just say research, doesn't hold that idea, does it? No, no, it doesn't hold that at all. I mean, mm. um, there are many people that have been through abuse and all kinds of things that grow up cisgender and straight. So it's a false connection. It's a false cause-effect relationship. Yeah. Um, there are also people, you know, the vast majority of LGBTQA plus people um, don't go, haven't gone through abuse and neglect in their childhood, at least any more than anyone else, and, and, yeah. have, also, and have ended up being quite healthy, well-adjusted um, yeah. people. What we do find, though, is that when you look at um, discrimination and... Yeah. Uh, and, and the effect that has on people growing up and poor treatment in childhood and, and in teenage years and 
um, that sort of yeah. really unnatural experience of having to hide a deep part of yourself from the people you love the most when you're growing up. So all of those things can cause some really serious mental health stuff. Um, as an adult, unfortunately, a lot of conversion practitioners, um, mm -hmm. which is usually church leaders, to be honest, and you know yeah. people who are operating under the guise of pastoral care and occasionally mm -hmm. counselling, they often pick up on that um, uh, uh, depression and anxiety mm -hmm. in adulthood and sort of try to create this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, retrospective narrative of how the person ended up queer. And, yeah. um, and what we find... Um, and what has is now beginning to be borne out in the research and we're now seeing or have seen for many years at Brave Network mm. is that the, the, the act of going back into your history and looking at memories that you once saw as beautiful and perhaps now seeing them as maybe not real, viewing yep. your parents as abusive when maybe they weren't, mm -hmm. and sort of reanalyzing your narrative to try and do a bit of a scavenger hunt inside of your life as to why you turned out queer, mm -hmm. that doing that causes more harm yep. than going to an ex-gay program in and of yeah. itself or having you know, ex-gay counselling in and of itself. It's, it's the art of questioning the foundation of your life um, that has, or it's a perverse art that has yeah. been built up in the conversion movement that actually causes the harm. So there are many people who come to Brave who never went through any formal conversion practices in a sort of one-on-one yeah. -on -one therapeutic setting mm -hmm. but have just as much harm and damage um, yeah. as those who did. Yeah. So I think it's really important to understand that the stories we tell people about our origins and our genesis, yeah. surprise, surprise, have a lot of power over us. Yes. Gosh, this... Um, it's interesting for me to hear you say this because I was raised during the purity culture um, movement. and Oh, that's a treat, you know, isn't it? Oh, gosh, <laughs> deconstructing, that's fun. Um, <laughs> it actually it kind of taught me to hate desire or to hate my naturally or aspects of my personality that are naturally bubbly and want to connect with people because that's interpreted as flirtation. So we were kind of taught <laughs> that if you save sex for marriage and kind of close off any form of sexual desire or attraction and save it all for your wedding night, then you'll just become, you know, absolute bombshell, you know, it's, just, it's all going to be just great. And over time, <laughs> the purity movement has, there's been a lot of collateral damage. Um, and I know we mentioned this last week on the podcast with Gretchen Baskerville, but um, like even Josh Harris, who wrote the book, I Kiss Standing Goodbye, he's he's just recently walked away from the faith and, and his marriage has, has ended. Um, but for, for a person like me, deconstructing that was one thing. But for my guy, who had also been through um, a, a course, a, an, an ex-gay course, um, it... it was even worse because there was kind of one form of desire that was not supposed to happen and then there was another form of desire that was just an even bigger sin and an even bigger shame and um, I hate it because this is a part of us that God created that we should be able to enjoy <laughs> we should be able to participate in without shame mm. um so deconstructing all of that has been really a journey um and um i guess he had a formal experience of going through the counseling in the course but those these aren't these informal um informal efforts informal practices what are, what are some of those i'd love us to be able to name them and, and call them out a little bit so people know what they're looking for yeah no absolutely so in the this uh context of a religious freedom debate which mm, some people probably think has been put on hold but i probably think it's happening behind the scenes now Ooh, like under so cover of the, yeah, <laughs> the covid pandemic yeah. um but um <laughs> Yeah, so during this time, you know, with all the submissions that have been pinging around the country, being put together by survivors, um, mm -hmm. the case has really been put forward to various state and territory governments, particularly uh, Tasmania, Queensland, ACT and Victoria, which is where we've been able to have our voices heard the most, mm -hmm. um, that, uh, that really we need to, you know, years ago the focus was on formal 
practitioners like psychologists and psychotherapists and psychiatrists yeah. delivering this kind of this kind of stuff, which is what the focus in California was on in their legislation. Mm-hmm. Um, but we now realise that that is not a, a, a domain where this kind of happens anymore in, in yeah. Australia. Um, and so then the focus when I started getting involved in this advocacy eight or nine years ago was on counsellors. But it's now fairly clear that you know, counselling is not government regulated through APRA, but mm-hmm. there are more, you know, checks and balances being put in place. So now we've re- we've gone back even further and the term we're using is pastoral care, which is interesting because it's sort of like the devil hiding in plain sight. Mm-hmm. Um, pastoral care is a term that many of us use and throw around a lot, but actually it's very hard to find cogent definitions of what that actually means, mm-hmm. particularly when it's organisations that are sort of secular that still use that term pastoral care and may even receive government funding to deliver particular services, one of which is pastoral care or pastoral care support. It's interesting because without having a clear understanding of what it means is that a person could be a pastoral care worker and performing services in a non-profit and look very much like a counsellor, just not using the term Mm counsellor. Or you could be a a minister of religion Mm -hmm. in a religious community um, delivering something called pastoral care through informal chats, through yeah. one-on-one chats in the office at the you know, the church building, for example, during weekdays when someone pops in to have a little bit of maybe prayer ministry or a chat about life or some yeah. you know, maybe life coaching or whatever you call it. Yeah. And it's fuzzy and grey. And because it's fuzzy, it means that religious communities can have attempted to draw a line around and say, this is ours and the state can't intervene. Mm-hmm. And I guess what we're trying to say is, well, actually... You know, if it if it barks like a dog, if it looks like a dog, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you're making therapeutic claims in the context of a power-based or a power differential relationship, um, then you are delivering something that the state should be interested in or at least know something about. Um, yeah. And it's usually in that context. Uh, and the reason why it's also important to talk about pastoral care in the context of the local church or faith community is because that's usually the place where the messaging that the church member has been hearing in sermons and in Bible study groups and small groups and possibly maybe for 20 years, like a very longitudinal kind of um, reception of that message, Mm -hmm. um, often is then referred to in that relationship with the pastoral care worker or the pastor or the priest. In fact, the person that you may be having a pastoral care meeting with, you know, every week or so if you're queer, Mm-hmm. Maybe the same pastoral worker that led your Sunday school, you know, program that you were a part of 15 or 20 years ago. So yeah. there's there's a connection there, and so you're not just talking about pastoral care, but you're also talk about talking about a person who is consolidating deep messaging and dare I say indoctrination in you, and also may um, there may be that sense of fear present that if I walk away from this pastoral care worker or pastor or priest or minister, then I'm possibly walking away from my community and then maybe my family. So there's a lot of fear there. And so we feel that when you've got that kind of messaging and consolidation and power involved, then it is something that the state should have interest in, particularly if there's potentially a suicide rate attached to it. Um, So... That's the long answer. (laughs) Yeah. And look, I'm all about long answers and there's so many things in that, but the power differential is an important thing here because um, it's it's been a personal bugbear of mine, I suppose, that um, increasingly there seems to be this movement in church, like, I don't know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, we knew what churches believed based on what they were called. so we knew that we knew what the Lutherans believed, what the Presbyterians believed, like, you know, the Anglicans, the Catholics, blah, blah, blah. But now we've got people with really slick marketing, mm. really slick branding around church, but not a clue what that actually means for the core doctrines and the core messaging that people are going to experience while they're, while they're participating in church life there. And, um, you know, along with that, you've got varying different um, grievance procedures or authority structures or lack thereof so that if a person is kind of undertaking, and I guess my big fear is that that conversion 
therapy efforts or ideologies will go underground in, and dig further down um, and be more hidden that way. But I'm getting off the topic here, but I guess the thing is like you might have somebody who's a really authoritarian, dogmatic leader, or you might have somebody who's really kind of affirming, but you don't know which end of the, you don't know which end of the spectrum that your pastor or your, you know, or your pastoral care worker sits on. So, you know, I that's a really good point. Sorry, that's a really good point, though. One of the things that we did or we do in our advocacy is we came up with a um, a statement of affirmation <clears throat> and we spent a long time working on it because we wanted to get an understanding of what language we could use um, to form a question um, or a statement that, that would kind of really force religious leaders to disclose what their actual position is. But we found that... Like I said earlier, you can ask a question like, um, you know, do you welcome gay people? Which is mm -hmm. often a term that, you know, the average person on the street might ask a church leader. Yeah. And they might go, they might say yes, but they may not actually affirm them theologically. Or maybe they do affirm gay and lesbian people, but maybe not trans people. So mm -hmm. we sort of had to come up with a statement. And the statement we came up with was that we believe LGBTIQA plus people are a loved and essential part of God's intended human diversity. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it's jam-packed, isn't it? And so yeah. um, obviously the bits that are, I don't know, triggers, I guess, for religious <laughs> leaders. <laughs> um, um, <laughs> so funny to use it in that context. But um, right. <laughs> I'll, I'll work. Yeah, 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 I'm thinking more trigger of a gun, but you know. Um, yeah, right. Like, um, <laughs> um, like the word intended human diversity. So that's a huge call mm -hmm. that, um, you know, that, that long before creation, LGBTIQA plus people were in God's mind, which is such an offensive thought for so many conservative people, but something that we love to talk about um, yeah. and essential that if we don't have out and proud LGBTQA plus people in the world and in the church, um, then the world is missing something very seriously. Um, yeah. So uh, that's why that statement of affirmation has become a bit of a divider for us. And um, we, uh, you know, we call it a statement of affirmation, but then when we find that that's really difficult, what we do is we just tell people, look, go to the church that you're hanging around and if, and if you really want to know what their position is, just observe, do they celebrate LGBTIQA plus people? Because it's very hard to truly be affirming and to mm. not celebrate, you yeah. know, um, LGBTIQA plus people, whether that be through, you know, their relationships or when a queer couple has children. Um, yeah. If a church says they're fully theologically affirming mm -hmm. um, but, you know, doesn't celebrate things that they would otherwise celebrate for straight and cisgender people, then, you know, that's a red flag. Yeah, so this is an important point to sit on and talk about here. I think there was a couple of things that you just said then. Um, one was around welcoming and affirming being two different things. Um, as, a, as an ally, um, I, I like to point out to, to people that welcoming and affirming are actually very different. And if you, have, if you have a pastor say, oh, LGBTQIA people are welcome here, that's a very different thing to saying they're welcome here and also you can serve on our music team or on our crash team. You can be part of, our, of, the, of the life of the church in the same way a cisgender and, and heterosexual married person mm -hmm. would be. Um, it's a very different thing, isn't it? Welcoming and affirming. Yeah, I mean, one of the things um, that we say about welcoming is that actually welcoming is potentially more dangerous for LGBTIQA plus people of faith yeah. than blatantly queerphobic churches or homophobic or transphobic churches. Um, if you walk into a community that is blatantly homophobic, biphobic mm -hmm. or transphobic, um, yeah. you know, like you'll just walk out. You won't yeah. stay there. You won't you may not be allowed to stay there or you'll just very quickly go, I can't, mm -hmm. I can't be here. I'm not even willing to hide in this church. Yeah. Um, so you'll leave. A church that's welcoming and, and we've had a, this has been a bit of a snag for many members of Brave over the years is you've got these churches that use all this very careful language of welcome and we love you and we want yeah. you to be involved and join a small group and you know, if you bring a partner along, we'll celebrate that. 
well, probably not celebrate, but they'll <laughs> welcome, I guess. Sort of. Well, grimace and smile, do that. Yeah, you know, smile yeah, and <laughs> we'll ask questions like, oh, is this your friend? And, you know, yes. all those kinds of lovely your things that we friend? love. Yes. Yeah, special friend, <laughs> um, yeah. but, um, but then as soon as someone wants to lead or, mm-hmm. you know, preach a sermon from the pulpit or um, pray for other people or... Um, get married or what have you, that's yep. when you'll find these flags go up. Another yep. thing of welcoming is where you'll find churches where they will um, just flat out celebrate you, but as soon as you get a partner, they'll say, oh, no, mm-hmm. um, we were celebrating you as a person, not as a queer person. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, we still think God should heal you or that you should be celibate. And the thing yeah. about celibacy is celibacy is really the same as the old-fashioned change efforts where people try to change another yeah. person's orientation because yeah. celibacy still says there's something wrong with you and you can't act on this defective part of yourself. Mm. So um, we actually don't see much of a difference between movements that advocate celibacy and those that advocate you know, an attempt to change orientation and gender. Yeah. Um, so essentially with welcoming churches, what you find is people go in them and they spend time thinking that they're affirmed and they marinate in this messaging and they build relationships. So when they finally work out that it's not a safe place, mm. it is extremely painful. The sense of betrayal is breathtaking. And a friend of mine who was in this kind of environment and situation um, you know, back in 2013 took mm. his life as a result oh. of that. Oh, and I know a lot of people, yeah, yeah, it was, it was, uh, anyway. Yeah. Not much more can be said about that, but, no. you know, um, in his situation, I think a lot of people who saw from the outside said, you know, um, I'll call him Daniel, that mm. wasn't his name, but, you know, a lot mm. of people thought Daniel, um, uh, you know, had been through, you know, he'd been through conversion practices. He had been through formal conversion mm-hmm. practices, as I had mm-hmm. um, as well. Um, and I guess there was this sense that, you know, that's why he took his life. And then other people would, you know, sort of make some inferences about his mental health in general throughout uh, his life and what yeah. have you. And, you know, I guess, but it was really clear to me that I saw him melting down in one mm. of these welcoming churches. And yeah. I, um, very strongly feel as someone who was a close friend to him that that was a, a very significant role in his decision to take his life um and and so i guess that's why we say that actually welcoming welcoming churches are potentially more dangerous than fire and brimstone churches um because of that uh, death by a thousand cuts that people experience in them yeah I think that's a really it's a really somber point to sit on but a really important point to sit on um is that people can think that by being welcoming and giving people an opportun- opportunity to find God, and I'm using air quotes here, and, and get fixed <laughs> or healed from this, it's actually really quite damaging, like very damaging um, in a way that we possibly hadn't thought of. So we're dealing with very deeply held beliefs here that just are not helpful that I just are not healing I wanted to mm-hmm. ask you from a theological point this is going to be a bugbear for a lot of people because I think that perhaps the last bastion of true homophobia is is in a lot is in many Christian institutions um how talk to talk to me about the theology behind affirming Christianity and, and that beautiful thing that you said that if we're not welcoming and affirming and celebrating LGBTQIA people that we are missing out? Mm. Um, I mean, obviously, there's the theology of, um, uh, the you know, the Imago Dei, the image of God that is in all of us, um, mm-hmm. that, that concept that, you know, the fall and sin has not necessarily removed the image of God in us as some sort of more wooden conservative um, reformation um, yeah. theologies originally felt you know Mm -hmm. you look at the republic of geneva for example um uh, for the the people playing along at home they should go and read about that because that's fascinating um and then (laughs) you've got your homework go google yeah yeah yeah. um (laughs) but i decide you know there's this uh 
I, I guess there's, there's so many elements to it. So firstly, even if you, mm. let's say, were in a welcoming church and you did actually believe that LGBTQA plus people are, are broken or damaged, this idea that therefore they can't lead mm -hmm. um, doesn't bear up even in fairly conservative understandings of the image of God in people, this okay. idea that God can't move through people, um, mm. you know what I mean? Mm. Um, that, that's fascinating. There's also yeah. the, the idea of pastoral theology as well um, right. and the fact that if you do think someone is broken, then the way that you should be around them is to love them and walk with them. So flat-out rejecting them is not even good conservative pastoral theology anyway. Right. It's um, counterintuitive when you put it that way, isn't it? <laughs> absolutely. Then you've yeah. got, you know, some of the nice little... Um, vignettes and anecdotes that you see out there in the progressive Christian world about the fact that a good tree can't produce bad fruit and vice versa and mm -hmm. why do you see so many LGBTIQ people of faith have lives that go from um, misery to joy and fullness when they come out as proud queer people mm -hmm. um, why do you see why have we seen virtually every single conversion program the ones that used to exist yeah. every single leader of those programs leave renounce their program, apologise, walk away, and some of them even marry their same-sex partner. Mm. Um, why do we see such an horrendous suicide rate behind trans people who have experienced transphobia? Um, there's yeah. this, I guess what's missing is that social theology or sociological kind of theology that's mm. there. But, but I still feel that even if you go through, for example, the six or seven clobber passages in Scripture, it's pretty darn obvious with even a basic understanding of Hebrew and Greek that... Um, and also a bit of 19th century history um, yes. and history of psychology, for example, it's pretty darn clear that it is 100% impossible that the words translated as homosexual could possibly mean what we consider to be LGBTQA plus today. Um, simply yeah. impossible that those concepts even existed back then at such a different time. Um, and so I think it's, I guess, skipping over the questions about theology, I guess what it makes me realise is the fact that um, when queer people do come out as proud queer people and then mm -hmm. choose to maintain their faith, it's no surprise they don't want to go back to evangelical churches, even to try and create change from within, because they mm. say, if you are capable of being so completely and utterly wrong on a theological, pastoral, spiritual level yeah. um, for so long, so completely on this issue, then, oh, my goodness, what other area, areas of faith are you wrong about as well? Mm -hmm. What are the basic areas of our faith in terms of everything from Trinity to other types of pastoral theology were you wrong in as well in terms of missiology? I mean, it doesn't take much studying of history to realise that, you know, the quote-unquote great waves of missionary movements in the last 300 years were piggybacking completely off colonialism. Yeah, um, gosh, so, yes. So, you know, if you speak to a lot of young queer Christians that I hang out with, they've joined all these dots. They're mm. way ahead of everybody else. Yeah. And, um, yeah. yeah, so that's a whole massive answers there, but I think it's, it's important to join these things together. So, Absolutely. And I guess that in terms of the theology stuff, um, I've got Kevin Garcia coming on the blog, uh, on the blog, on the podcast in a few weeks' time. Kevin. Um, oh, wow. He's great. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. I had the pleasure of um, actually being able to read his book before it came out, Bad Theology Kills. And oh, gosh. So he's going to talk about theology stuff and it's going to be a great conversation. So uh, definitely tune in for that one, everybody listening out there. But um I suppose uh, we haven't even. Sorry, I should correct to... myself and say that they are fantastic because uh, the... <laughs> uh, Kevin uses they them pronouns, and I do apologise to Kevin. <sighs> yes, and that is oh misgendering. That's a whole thing. Um, yeah, that's a whole thing. But anyway, we'll we'll talk to Kevin about that when they are on the podcast. Um, thank you for picking me up on that. I I just wanted to a we haven't actually talked about what the Brave Network is yet, um, and. So I think this podcast episode will just be a long one and I'll kind of <laughs> recut the beginning that I made of myself anyway. Okay, so talk to me about the Brave Network. What What is it that you have set up here and how is it that people within the Brave Network, you know, are able to or choose to um, participate in faith and community? Hmm. Um, the Brave Network really came out of... Um, 
sort of advocacy that was happening actually in the wake of uh, my friend who I called Daniel, mm-hmm. uh, who suicided in 2013. Mm-hmm. Uh, he took his life, sorry. Um, and um, uh, a whole, I guess, number of uh, people in my life that I knew had been through the journey of conversion practices, um, as well as some fairly prominent evangelical megachurch leaders and theologians from the evangelical Bible colleges I went to mm-hmm. had sort of really... Um, I guess it isn't that they'd kept their stories under wraps. It was more the fact that they just really didn't um, understand how to get those stories out there and didn't have the support to tell a story. And, you know, mm-hmm. I've got a background in communications, so, mm-hmm. um, and I connected with someone at the Joy Radio 94.9 in, mm-hmm. in Melbourne and um, uh, connected with Dean Beck, and we put together a show called Inside X Gay, which had about nine episodes over three yeah. years, um, yeah. very meticulously crafted episodes with incredible leaders, and many of whom were really, I guess, coming out, either coming out or mm-hmm. coming out as affirming, yeah. um, including Nicole Connor and uh, Dr. John Kappa, mm-hmm. um, the late Bishop John McIntyre, um, oh. a whole range of people. Yeah. And... Uh, and it was it was explosive, and we had incredible feedback, and it led to sort of advocacy with the Victorian government and mm-hmm. stuff that's still happening now, which is quite amazing. And and then uh, connected with <clears throat> another fellow who had um, some other connections, and we put together the Brave Network. Mm-hmm. Um, initially, Brave had a really strong sort of you know young white gay male kind of mm-hmm. um, approach, <laughs> but and I think you know that's a community that often you know wants a lot of focus whether yeah. they're in the church or not or whether they're, mm-hmm. um, you know, whoever they are, that that's, you know, quite a, a loud bunch of, you know, of the LGBTIQA plus community. Um, don't know what I'm saying, but I know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's take the spirit of the sentence, people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, and so, but what we found is that there were just so many trans people and bi people mm-hmm. and, and women um, who really needed support. And so when we sort of made it more about them we actually Mm -hmm. found that a lot you know fewer gay young gay men started you know kept coming along i think a lot of them had a lot of support already um and so we found that over the last five years since brave started um we've sort of morphed into this group that has now five leaders i'm only one of them i chair the steering group meetings but the rest is very evenly run by all of us we meet once a month at a at a pub Yep. Um, which is uh, a nice halfway. It's not not a LGBTIQ venue, but it's not a Christian venue. Mm-hmm. Um, we so much of what we talk about is about gender, queer theology, and feminist theology, um, yes. or rather feminist theory. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know might have at the beginning felt a little bit like a um, I don't know conversion practices survivors anonymous kind of group, but. Um, <laughs> I think now we've really attacked the ideology and, you know, over the years we've had, you know, artist incursions and we've had, you know, video nights and we've had guest speakers from around the world that have been here in the country, like Kathy Baldock, for example, and um, Justin Lee and other people. Um, You know, a lot of us have gone over to the Reformation Project in the US. Oh, Um, amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's been amazing. And then, but a huge focus has been bringing in journalists and communications professionals to either report and write stories based on what they've seen in the group and Mm -hmm. they've been mostly respectful. Some journalists have been very disrespectful Mm -hmm. and tried to use our stories to make like a a fetishised kind of narrative. Um, But for the most part, they've been very respectful. Uh, Shout out to Farrah Thomason from The Age, who's been brilliant, and also um, Darren Mara from SBS. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, we've also done a lot of media training for the people who come to Brave. So I'm so proud of them. I look back at some of the younger ones who started out and they were, I mean, I don't know how to say this, a bit of a mess, really, after (laughs) what they've been through, really, um, so traumatised and now are regularly in newspapers or on radio or television telling their stories, getting the messaging right. That is Um, amazing. So, yeah, it's sort of this support and advocacy group, I guess you could say, and um, we're also connected to the SOGI survivors, sexual orientation and gender identity change effort survivors, mm-hmm. um, which is co-led with uh, Chris Chabs in Sydney. And so we've written the SO survivor, well now the SOGI survivor statement, yeah. um, which has been signed by a large number of queer groups, politicians, community yeah. organisations, celebrities. Yeah, that and that's is amazing. A major, 
Yeah, and so it's been a huge journey for us to, to do all of yeah. this work, but it's been really amazing to see the change we've made. And yeah. I would actually say that much of what we're doing is unprecedented and hasn't happened anywhere else in the world. So, But it's only really because of the support of our allies as well um, who have been, you know, church leaders that have risked everything and sometimes lost everything to support us. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that is so important because this is not an issue that and it's a bugbear of mine. Love your neighbor as yourself. It was, you know, when when Jesus said a new commandment I give you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, love your neighbor as yourself. We can't fob this off just because we ourselves are comfortably, you know, heterosexual or cisgender. I think it's important like for us right now um and look this interview could go for ages because it's a topic i'm so passionate about but you, <laughs> you raised the religious freedom act um just at the beginning um saying that you know during covid it's kind of it looks like it's gone on the back burner it's it's an important time for allies out there to not forget that this this um piece of legislation is in the works so um where is somewhere that people can go to access the the work that you guys have put together? Um, because the messaging is important. Um, you know, if we, we are people who who love people, who love Jesus, and who um, and who love His church, and it's a really important thing that we make sure that people aren't being hurt in church, that they aren't, um, you know, facing well-intentioned but incredibly damaging ideologies. Um, that if we knew a little more, if this progressive theology was a little bit more accessible and if people didn't shut off to it, we could see isn't biblical. That was a really long question. <laughs> no, 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 it's, that, that's good. Um, so our website is thebravenetwork.org mm -hmm. and you can find there's a fact sheet there, it's like an A3 folded fact sheet, um, which we uh, give out at evangelical events. Mm -hmm. sometimes stealth sometimes not so stealth um it's called equal affirmed included and we're updating it at the moment but the uh the previous version is still there and still really solid and that lists mental health support services um other affirming groups it also has the list of incredible books podcasts and i think uh films uh, and also a glossary plus some definitions of terms and that Amazing. is to sort of really support isolated particularly younger um queer people in mm -hmm. Christian communities mm -hmm. and then we also have the Sojai Survivor Statement on that website as well so that's the bravenetwork.org. Uh, Brave Network Melbourne has a Facebook page which looks kind of sparse but it's because it's actually a bit of a front so we just get people to message us through that or email us yeah. through the website and then we can invite them into our private group. Yeah. Um, obviously we won't be meeting in person anytime soon. We've had to cancel for the first time ever our monthly oh, gathering no. of course. Um, but we're looking, yeah, it's pretty rubbish, but we're looking at, um, we're in, in a bit of a shock, so we didn't really set up a, a, a video sort of meeting in March, but we'll, uh, we'll aim to do that in April. Yeah. So, yeah. Now, um, I, I guess as we, as we get to the end of this, um, I hope, I hope people at home have listened, even if, if this topic made them uncomfortable. The fact is that this is a project you've taken on, not as an attack on the church, but as a service to the church, truly. Oh, as 100%. a service to the church, to the people in it. Um, because, you know, hey, Jesus died for all of us and there's a big chunk of society that's being excluded or damaged because we're because some of us aren't willing to be a little bit uncomfortable and to really delve into the theology and actually look at why we should be affirming, not just welcoming, but affirming. So I, I think if there's anything that I want to get to, across today, it's that um, mm. this is not an attack on the church. This is not an attack on anyone's personal Christianity. This is a service to it. We, as these people who sit in incredibly privileged positions, just by virtue of being Australian or, you know, if we, if we happen to be cisgender or if we happen to be heterosexual, even more so, we can afford to make ourselves a little bit uncomfortable in order to actually make the lives of people so much better. Because, um, look, I'm absolutely sure that your friend who you lost to suicide was not the first nor the last to be negatively impacted by um, by this theology. Kevin's mm. book is called Bad Theology Kills, and it's a fact. <laughs> I was going to say, I think, so you've made a really good point there, Kid, actually. The, um about 
uh, we who are privileged surely can make ourselves a bit uncomfortable. I would actually say that as I've tried to work out what is the gospel and what does it mean to be Christ-like, something that's hit me is, you know, because then we, you know, you often hear Christians talk about, they get, they define for themselves what their costly version of their faith is. They say, you know, your faith, you know, following, following Jesus is costly. Yeah. But then people set for themselves what that cost is going to be. And often it looks costly to other people. For them, maybe they don't mind paying it. Like, you know, my cost is going to be mm-hmm. doing a mission trip in Africa or Paris or Hawaii. I don't know. Paris, um, and, take me to that one. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and, and everyone's like, oh, my gosh, it's so costly. Look what they've done. But actually I would say that, you know, if you, if you look at those very few um, passages in scripture and or, or parables, you know, where Jesus separates the sheep from the goats and, mm-hmm. you know, you've got, um, you know, Lazarus and the rich man, for example, you have this, this true, um, I get this deep sense of what divides us up as yep. Christ-like or not really being Christ-like in terms of the attitude of our heart. And mm-hmm. do we err on the side of mercy and bondage? When we're unsure about something, how do we err? Do we err on the side of being gracious or in being exacting? Um, mm. So that, that, that little comment you made about are we willing to make ourselves a bit uncomfortable for other people, I'd almost say that the life of being Christ-like on an hour-by-hour basis is made up on a micro level of little steps, hour-by-hour, of those little choices that come past us where we see a need that could be filled or we see something, an area where... We can choose to be punishing and exacting or merciful and gracious. It's mm. all those little moments. Yep. And it's those little moments that built up to so many of our allies loving us and supporting us. Yep. And it's people not choosing to be gracious that yep. has led to death and suicide. So I think... Um, and we're not being dramatic there. Yeah. That is just... Yeah. That is how it is. Yeah. And anyway, that's my little preachy rant about Christ-likeness. <laughs> and I think it's a good point to finish on. Thank you so very, very much uh, for, for talking to me today about your incredible work. For everyone listening, uh, thebravenetwork.org, um, go to there. <laughs> and let's not forget that uh, times of national crisis aren't necessarily times <laughs> when the cogs stop turning on, on things like the religious freedom act i do not believe that christians in australia should be grandstanding on the right to be the nastiest people in australia Um, oh what (laughs) i in my personal life try to choose mercy try to choose compassion and try to choose a more informed faith so um one way to become more informed is to jump over to thebravenetwork.org and find out the kind of work that they've been doing and the kind of messaging that may help you write into a local member of parliament or sign a petition or whatever it is. Thank you, Nathan, for your time today. I'm Kit Kennedy. This is Unchurchable. I know that was a bit of a meaty listen, so I really hope that you enjoyed it. I also hope you'll tune in next week when I speak to Carrie Meyer. Carrie Meyer is a good friend of mine. We met way back when, when our both of our faiths and walks with God were perhaps a little simpler. The process of deconstruction has taken us along different paths when it comes to examining faith and spirituality. She's talking about a very important topic next week, and it is dealing with the shadows in our lives, bringing our decision-making power back into our own hearts instead of assigning it to the people that were authority figures over our lives. And lastly, she's actually talking about releasing the fear of hell. I hope you'll tune in for that one. I'll see you next week.